0: Please take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 20. John chapter 8, verses 12 through 20. That will be our text for this morning. I'm going to go ahead and read it if you're there. The Word of God says, Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I have come from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, My judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I am the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your Father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Every evening during the Feast of Booths, there was a lamp lighting ceremony at the temple. In this place within the temple grounds called the Court of the Women, which was also known as the treasury. You can see that down in verse 20. There were four huge candelabra that were lit at dusk. They were positioned in such a way that the light from each one came together to form one beam that went up into the sky like a powerful searchlight. So envision that in your mind's eye. You've got this room or this courtyard and you've got these candelabra set up. And they're positioned in such a way where the light comes together and just goes right up into the sky. One ancient Jewish historian said that the beam of light was so bright that you could see it from every courtyard in Jerusalem. Like the water ceremony we talked about last week, the the lamp lighting ceremony also pointed to the past as well as to the future. It reminded the people of the pillar of fire by which God guided Israel in the wilderness during the Exodus. You know, during the night, the Israelites, Israelites traveled, and then they needed a source of light to guide them through the wilderness. And, and God worked through a pillar of light or a pillar of fire as sort of a giant lamp to lead them as they went. And this The lighting of these candelabra represented that. That big beam represented that time and it reminded them of that time. Exodus 13, 21 says, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. It also reminded the people of the future work of their messiah to come. Isaiah prophesied that messiah would come as a or as the divine light bearer and shine truth upon those who walk in darkness. The idea is that when messiah comes he will bring the light of God's revelation and people who exist in darkness will be led out of that darkness. We read about this in Isaiah 9 chapter chapter 9 verse 2. He said it this way The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. So, when the people looked at this bright beam of light shooting into the sky coming from these candelabra, they thought of God guiding them by light in the wilderness through that pillar of fire. And they thought of their Messiah who would come as their light bearer to guide them forever and ever. That's the symbolism here. Now, During this ceremony, the people, including the most dignified leaders, danced around the candelabra through the night. They literally just threw down and partied all night. They just danced around this thing all night long, and they held burning torches, and they they sang songs of praise as the Levitical orchestras played their music. It was quite a scene. It was against this backdrop that Jesus declares, I am the light of the world. In fact, I think that he actually proclaimed this as the ceremony was going on. And so what that means is it means that this section and pretty much the rest, not pretty much, but all of the rest of chapter 8, all of those teachings happened in the evening. Very likely. But you can just see it here as this ceremony is playing out and they're reflecting on the past and looking forward to the future. And then in their midst is the Messiah who stands up and sort of interrupts the ceremony and says, I am the light of the world. Pretty amazing if you think about it. Look at verse 12 with me. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Here's where he does it. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The first thing I want you to notice here is how well this section attaches itself to chapter 7, verse 52, where we left off last Sunday. The word again indicates that Jesus was still at the temple speaking to the people, it indicates that the feast of booths was still going. Some of the early manuscripts present a different chronological order than our English Bibles or English translations. The one that makes the most sense to me lists Jesus' first day at the temple in chapter 7 verses 14 through 36, His second day at the temple, in chapter 7 verse 53 through 8:11, and then His last day at the temple, the last day of the feast in chapter 7, 37 through 52, and 8:12 through 59. So it's a little jumbled around in the English translation, but in the early manuscripts, it seems to have the logical flow. This is the order we've been following, and the reason why I taught about the woman caught in adultery several weeks ago. I put it back in the original order according to some of those original manuscripts. It's not an error that was made, a mistake that was made, it's just the way that it turned out, but it's all truth and all the stories are there and truthful. That's the first thing I want you to notice is that order there, again, symbolizing he'll, he's still teaching on that last day. And now I think he's at, it's at night, and he's taking advantage of this light-bearing or light lamp-lighting ceremony that's going on, and he's speaking right through that. And he just had this amazing ability to th- take things around him and use them as object lessons or to use them as a metaphor for truth. And that's what he's doing. Notice also the, the phrase, I am. Right there at the beginning, I am the light of the world. This is the second of seven strategic I am statements in John's gospel that literally reveal different facets of Jesus' nature as God and his work as Savior. Back in John chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. That's the first one. I am the bread of life. I am. And this was his way of saying, I am the divine Messiah and manna of God who satisfies your spiritual hunger. I'm the only one who can do it. This time he says, I am the light of the world. This was his way of saying, I am the divine Messiah and light bearer who brings light into the world and who guides people out of darkness. I am the fulfillment of Isaiah 9-2. MacArthur writes... Jesus alone, Jesus Christ alone brings the light of salvation to a sin-cursed world. To the darkness of falsehood, He is the light of truth. To the darkness of ignorance, He is the light of wisdom. To the darkness of sin, He is the light of holiness. To the darkness of sorrow, He is the light of joy. And to the darkness of death, He is the light of life. The last thing I want you to notice here in this verse, at Jesus' statement in the second half of verse 12, I am the light of the world is not the only thing he said here as he proclaimed the gospel. He also declared, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now his statement here features an indictment and an invitation. It's twofold. There's an indictment. There's a judgment that's here. He has rendered a judgment, an indictment, and he includes an invitation. The indictment is that the people of this world walk in darkness. That's our default mode. The world is in darkness. People are in darkness. He says, I'm going to give you a way out of it. But as it stands, we are in darkness. The world is in darkness. Now, what kind of darkness is He referring to? Because I don't know about you. I can look to the right. You look to your left. I see a lot of sunlight blasting through them windows. In fact, I can feel the heat. I guess it's probably just me getting fired up preaching a little bit. But What kind of darkness is Jesus referring to here? Was He referring to physical darkness? No. The sun fills the earth with physical light and heat each day. It's not what He meant. He is talking about spiritual darkness caused by sin, caused by human depravity, perpetuated by the enemy, Satan. Sin has darkened our minds. Sin has hardened our hearts. Sin has alienated the human race from God. Ephesians 4.18 kind of summarizes there. Satan works in partnership with our sinful nature to... Work to keep people blind to the truth. Satan is a perpetuator of darkness. And he works with our own sin and our own sinful nature to keep us in that darkness. 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Darkness abounds on the earth. Even though we see all of this light, spiritual darkness abounds on the earth. The earth is a darkened place, and some people out there think it's a wonderful place, and people are just great and roses and, and and you know, and my little pony, and everything's wonderful. Some people don't live in reality. The wars, the bloodshed, the hatred, the racism. All examples of this darkness. Our nation being peeled apart. All examples of it. Darkness abounds on the earth. Why? Because of fallen humanity. The earth is darkened because humanity is darkened. Not to mention that once Adam and Eve sinned, God brought a curse upon the earth. He cursed the earth because of their rebellion. The earth is is evil because it is filled with evil people who love sin and hate God. Read Romans 1. It shows us the verdict Men men love the creation and worship the creation, not the creator. Men burn with passion for one another. Humanity loves sin. It hates God. And all are in darkness because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 This is the indictment that is present here in his statement. Walking in darkness, this is just what I'm talking about here, it just represents the indictment of what it looks like. And we could go into a lot more detail, but I don't really like to talk about the darkness. Although you have to, because without the darkness, there's no purpose for the light. Without sin, there's no purpose for salvation. Big mistake not to talk about sin today and to talk about the gospel till the cows come home. We need to be saved from sin and other things. So that's the indictment. The world is in darkness. People are in darkness. Even though it's lit outside and it's bright and all of that, there is a spiritual darkness that is upon the earth and people are groping about walking in it, but they prefer it. They love it. In fact, they flee from the light because their deeds are evil and they love their evil deeds. It says Ed and John. Now we look at the invitation. Whoever follows Jesus... Whoever believes in Him, whoever trusts in Him as Lord and Savior, shall no longer walk in sin and the spiritual darkness that sin perpetuates. Instead, he or she shall have the light of life. J.C. Ryle describes what the light of life is like in his commentary. This is really good. It is... Spiritual light, which is superior to the light of any lamp or even the light of the sun. The spiritual light that Christ gives is independent of time or place. is not affected by sickness or death. Burns forever and cannot be quenched. He who has it shall feel light within his mind, heart, and conscience. Shall see light before him on the grave, death, and the world to come. He shall have light shining round him, guiding him in his journey through life, and shall reflect light by his conduct, ways, and conversation. What a great explanation of what light of life is. I'm reminded of Colossians chapter 1 verses 13 and 14. You familiar with that passage? It says the Father has delivered believers from the domain of darkness and transferred them to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom they have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The Father's plan of salvation involves deliverance from sin, deliverance from darkness, and transference into the kingdom of Christ. And this is essentially what Jesus offered to the people that night. He's offering them transfer out of darkness into light by faith in Him. This is what He's saying to them. If they put their trust and faith in Him alone, they would be delivered and transferred. They would have the light of life, which is a fancy way of saying eternal life. Light of life and eternal life are basically synonymous here. If the people, however rejected His offer, they would remain in their sin. They would remain in darkness. It's not that they would enter darkness. They're already in it. They would just stay in the darkness. They would just stay in their sins. How did people respond to His indictment, His judgment, as well as His invitation? In the next eight verses, we will see one group emerge and engaged Jesus, the uber-religious Pharisees. They were the so-called enforcers of the law of Moses. Bottom line, they came at Jesus hard right here. No one else said a peep, but they certainly did. They did not like what He said. And they came at Him hard. In doing so, they not only revealed the truth about themselves, the fact that they were indeed in darkness but they also set an example for us. This next section will be highly practical, very topical. I'm going to give you seven marks of those who are in darkness, right from the text. So be ready to write these things down. This what you're going to see here are this is the way that darkness and people who are in darkness respond to the offer to the light who is Christ and to the offer of light. This is the way People in darkness respond. This is the way I responded for about 30 years of my life. My wife for a long time. Many of you, some of you in this room, are probably still responding in this way. Hopefully not. But this is what people in darkness do. Number one, they seek to disqualify Jesus' testimony. Verse 13 says, So the Pharisees said to Him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. They were immediately trying to disqualify his testimony about him being the light and about the offer of transference from darkness to light. They immediately responded by trying to disqualify, undermine, by attacking his testimony, by attacking his word. One of the ways that we see that today is with people not just attacking the Word of Jesus, which is really entirely the Word of God, but we see people attacking all of Scripture. And and, and these, these are religious people. Wait a minute. Religious people aren't supposed to attack Scripture. Religious people aren't supposed to attack God. They're not supposed to attack their Messiah. Those in darkness attack the Word of God. Question its veracity and authority. And here we see a prime example of that. And it all stems from that demonic question that Satan asked. Did God really say? Did God really say? There's the first questioning of absolute truth. And people have been doing it ever since. And that's precisely what they do here. They're they're trying to say that he doesn't have the right to bear witness because he hasn't gone through protocol. But it's just a fancy way of denying and trying to disqualify what he has said. They, quite frankly, didn't like his testimony because they didn't like the judgment. They didn't like the idea of darkness. Some people are in darkness, Jesus, but certainly not us. This is what they're thinking. And what they're saying here, you bearing witness about yourself, your testimony is not true. What they're saying is we could translate that as who gives you the right to interrupt this ceremony and say what you've just said? Who do you think you are? Do you not know who you're dealing with? We are the religious leaders. We're the ones that say what goes. We're the ones that determine who's in darkness and who's not. And we're the ones that hold the keys to getting out of that darkness. You have no authority here. Look, you can't. your testimony doesn't hold water. It's not legit. People in darkness seek to disqualify Jesus' testimony. It wasn't long ago where I was kindly debating a couple of gals who were doing this very thing about the deity of Christ. Well, He's the Son of God. That doesn't mean He's God. Uh, son of God, scripturally speaking, means He's God. Son of man means He's man. And, I, I, and they said, well, the Bible just doesn't teach that. And I said, well, you, you know, the whole Bible teaches it, but really you can stop at John. Because every page puts forth the deity of Jesus Christ. The, the whole purpose of the gospel is to prove His deity and to prove His Messiahship. And, and here are two people who claim to be following Jesus. And I was gentle with them. You're thinking, I don't see how you could be. I was. I wanted to persuade them, not blow them out. Well, internally, I wanted to blow them out. But, but I, I didn't, you know, didn't want to do that because that doesn't get you anywhere. And I just tried to reason from Scripture. But here's two people who claim to love Jesus. They do love a Jesus, one of the many Christs that John warned us about in his epistles, first through third John. You know, many Christs will come. And they just, they just rejected the plain teachings of Scripture. They rejected Jesus' testimony about His own deity, which when He says, I am, He's saying, I am deity. I am God. I'm sure you've seen and and experienced examples of this with people. And, And it's hard to believe that those two sweet ladies are in darkness. But they are. They are. They are. They absolutely are. Number two, those who are in darkness are ignorant of heaven Verse 14, now you might be thinking, duh. Well, but you must understand, there are people in darkness that think they're going to heaven. They think they know everything about heaven. In fact, they might know more stuff about heaven than you do. Some of them say they've visited it and came back. Saw Grandpa up there, he had teeth finally. People who are in darkness are ignorant of heaven. Verse 14, Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. He's speaking of heaven. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You see, these men were the most religious men in the world at the time. And they didn't. They're ignorant of heaven because they don't understand what heaven is. Heaven is the abode of God. It's where the the throne of God is, where the Father sits in the middle and the Son sits to His right, to His right hand. It's it's the place where Jesus is. Heaven and, and Jesus are synonymous. When you think of heaven as a place, think of Jesus. It is the place that He stepped out of and came down and condescended. And at His ascension, it is the place to where He returned. I'm astonished at how many people are religious out there that actually are totally ignorant of heaven because they fail to understand or refuse to acknowledge and accept the reality of what heaven is. It is where Jesus came from, as He said. It is where He was going when He said that. And He tells them plainly, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. That's an indictment. The men who spent their lives studying about heaven and planning to go to heaven and preaching and inviting people to go to heaven were not actually going to heaven. These are the types that, that show up and, 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 and they're standing there and Jesus says to them, away from me, you workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. Well, what are you talking about? We did all these things in your name. Doesn't matter. People who are in darkness are ignorant of heaven. And and we might immediately apply that to the atheist. Well, we already know the atheist is in darkness. We know that. But we are dealing with religious people here. The most religious people. You can know a lot about heaven. You can know a lot about the Bible. You can come to church all the time. You can be a tithing maniac. You can do all of this stuff and serve the Lord in every capacity. You can do all of this stuff and not know anything about heaven. Not know the truth about heaven. If you reject the incarnation of Christ, you reject heaven. Because it's from heaven that he came and sought her, his bride. People who are in darkness are ignorant of heaven. And it's primarily because they exclude Jesus from it or they have a different Jesus. And heaven is about the Godhead. It's about Jesus. I used to tell students this when I was a youth pastor all the time. They, oh, heaven, heaven, heaven's great. Golden streets and big old supper tables and all this stuff. I'm like, you're getting your theology from the newsboys. I might want to rethink that. But they would go on and on and on about how great heaven's going to be. And I would tell them, you know what? Let me tell you what makes heaven great. God. Because if God isn't there, heaven's just another destination. Don't think of your inheritance as all of these great things and I'll finally be released of financial burden and, and like the, the tooth situation, ha- everything will be perfected for me. Your inheritance is grander than what you're going to receive. Your inheritance is God Himself and His eternal presence in all glory, love, and grace. I remember reading a book years ago, called God is the Gospel by John Piper. Very, very good, short little book. And it just talks about, yeah, heaven is wonderful, but God is who makes heaven wonderful. Christ is who makes heaven wonderful. To spend your eternity with him, with the one who saved you, and to not have to live by faith anymore, but to be able to live by sight and touch To see the one and to see the scars. Oh, how glorious. But those who are in darkness are ignorant of these things. Number three, those who are in darkness are incapable of understanding or discerning spiritual matters. Verse 15, Jesus put it like this. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. So Jesus rendered a judgment that the whole world is in darkness. But their inability to understand the judgment he rendered, it was really a spiritual matter that Jesus was presenting. He was speaking of spiritual darkness. And when it came to these religious men, the, the, the totality of their understanding and the totality of their theology it revolved around the flesh and matters of the flesh The temporal, things that do not last, things that do not have eternal value. And those who are in darkness, that's as far as it goes for them. They can only understand things on this side of heaven and things that are physical and temporal. They have no propensity, no ability to understand or comprehend spiritual matter, spiritual truth. The truth is spiritually discerned, it says in Scripture. And these guys are absolutely confused and their judgments against Jesus, their judgments against all, whenever they rendered a judgment or some sort of an evaluation, it always had to do with temporal and what's in front of them. It always revolved around what's in darkness. No light. And again, what's spectacular is that these are the most religious people on the face of the earth the most and they just have no they think they're attacking Jesus who's preaching truth to them and inviting them out of darkness Jesus isn't being harsh with them <laughs> and they just they just don't get it and quite frankly they don't want to get it they refuse they refuse. They don't understand spiritual matters. Those in darkness do not understand spiritual matters. You could take any spiritual matter. You could talk about any doctrine, any truth, any, anything at all here, and it just, it's like they're, it's they're bulletproof. It just, it doesn't register. It doesn't, they haven't been illuminated. They haven't been regenerated by the Spirit. They, they're spiritually dead. They have no propensity, no ability, no nothing. They cannot comprehend, although they do religion very well and appear to comprehend and appear to have understanding. Uh, Typically, we think of it as people having head knowledge but no heart knowledge, something like that. People in darkness are incapable of understanding spiritual matters, although they think they understand them better than you. And better than Jesus here. Well, we, we got it down. This guy doesn't know what he's talking about. This guy's off his rocker. He's lost his mind. Look at that. He's, he's, he's interrupting our ceremony. What a fool. Number four. Those who are in darkness refuse to accept the truthfulness of Jesus' judgments. 16. Yet if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. So again, there is an indictment, there is a judgment in Jesus' statement in verse 12, right? The world is in darkness. It's a truthful judgment. I don't even think you have to be a spiritual person, a redeemed person, a saved person, know that there's something wrong in the world, Right? I mean, unless you're just a lunatic, and you you just can't see it. Uh, The fact that everyone in this room, probably everyone, with the exception of Dan and Frida, maybe because of where they live, locks their front door at night. I do. (laughs) (laughs) You know? I know the cooks do. They live down the street from me. We got some. We got some. Some interesting folks coming through there at all hours. Who locks their door? You're so insensitive. <laughs> you're 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 fearful. You shouldn't be fearful. I mean, that's a that's a proof that there's something wrong, right here in our own community, right here in our own neighborhoods. Uh, you just you you've you've got to be a special kind of person to not be able to see that there are problems and, and, and problems in, in, in the world. So, Jesus is, just, just out of sheer logic, Jesus's judgment, His indictment is, is true. There is a darkness. The world is in darkness. People are in darkness. There's truth to that. That's not a crazy thing to say. And yet, these guys are just freaked out. I think that they're upset because they believe He's talking about them, right? They refuse to accept the truthfulness of Jesus' judgments. He made a judgment. He says up there in 15, I judge no one, so He wasn't picking anyone out. He was making a generalized judgment. He did it there in His statement, but He says, if I do, if I do cast a judgment, it's true. It's true. Why? Because of where I've come from, where I'm going, because of who sent me, the Father. His judgments are true. And yet those who are in darkness reject His judgments. They do not take His judgments at face value. They do not believe them. There could be someone in this room who's scoffing now. Oh, Darkness, whatever, invitation into light, whatever. I don't need that. I'm a good person. Well, that's a classic example of it failing or refusing to accept the truthfulness of Jesus' judgment. It's what people in darkness do. It's not just Jesus' judgment, it's it's all of Scripture. That the truthfulness of God's word is not only challenged, but rejected oh, that's just an old book that was written by a bunch of weirdos and dresses and it's just strange and, you know, it's, it's, it's not inerrant. There's, 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 uh, there's problems all throughout the whole thing and let me show you one here and, you know, this is what people do. It's what people do. Why? Because they're in darkness. The darkness hates the light. Number five, they reject the divine witnesses and violate the law. People who are in darkness reject the divine witnesses and violate the law, 17 and 18. In your, Jesus says this, in your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. So there's the qualifier if somebody's going to bear testimony in a legal setting or in any kind of capacity that matters, you had to have two witnesses, right? There's the, there's the legal, that's what's requisite to the law to casting a proper testimony. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. In other words, if you go by yourself to a judge, he's probably not going to pay attention to you. But if you go with another witness, then he's got to listen to you. And he says this. I am the one who bears witness about myself. There's one, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. There's two. Jesus qualified. He met the demands of the law. But on the other side, the Pharisees are rejecting both witnesses. They're both divine witnesses, which means their witnessing is the best. They're rejecting Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Man, fully God. They're rejecting the Father who is God. Those are the testifiers. And these men rejected the testimony of Jesus, called it into question, and therefore violated their own Mosaic law. So those who accuse Jesus of breaking the law are actually the lawbreakers. And this is why Jesus called them out pretty consistently on their hypocrisy. These were the guys who would point out to someone and expose their sin, humiliate them, embarrass them, annihilate them, even publicly. They did it with a woman caught in adultery. Was she involved in a grievous sin? Absolutely. But some of those same men who did it were involved in the same sin. It's a, a hypocrisy, which I think is the ugliest thing in the universe. And sadly, at times, I'm filled with it." Now These men are trying to curse and damn Jesus for what He's saying here. He's trying to save them. And they're cursing Him and saying, you violated our law, when in fact, they were the ones who were violating their own law. He had the right amount of witnesses he and the father not to mention he had 11 well he had 12 disciples but we know one of them was an enemy but he had 11 of them there that would have witnessed for him too they were convinced of who he is they were convinced at this point and a little later they acted like they weren't but isn't that human nature i totally believe on tuesday wednesday not too sure They rejected the divine witnesses, and they violated their own law. That's what people in darkness do. They reject the witness of Christ. They reject the witness of the Father. They reject the witness of Scripture, and they violate God's law. And the punishment is death. God's judgment comes against those who have broken His law. And it's pretty much everyone, with the exception of those whom God has rescued and pulled out. Six, people who are in darkness demand physical proof. They demand, Jesus, prove yourself. Right? 19a, they said to Him, therefore, where is your father? So you're saying that you have another witness, and you're saying it's your father, Where is your father? And I know it's capitalized, but I think they were thinking, where's Joseph? Go get Joseph. Bring Joseph, right, his earthly father. Bring him out here and let's see what he has to say. You're telling us this, but we want you to prove it, Jesus. You said you have another witness. Go get Joseph. Why do I think they were speaking of Joseph? Because they didn't believe he had come from the heavenly father even though it's capitalized, might be out of respect. They demand physical proof. Jesus said of those who demand signs and physical proofs from them, He called them a cursed generation. Do we not see that going crazy in certain denominations today? Signs and wonders, signs and wonders. Show us a sign, show us a sign. Those who demand signs are cursed. Some people just, yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to take that next step until you prove yourself to me through a sign. And you know how Jesus responds? No sign for you. Like the soup Nazi. <laughs> he doesn't, he's not Jojo the circus monkey. He doesn't jump through our hoops. He's not obligated to show us anything, to prove anything to us. We are only deserving of God's justice and wrath. And those who demand a sign, I think it's a a high offense, especially those who claim Christ. But people who are in darkness are always looking for that next sign, always looking for that next proof, always looking for that. They're always on on the search for some kind of experience where they can have another emotional high. You know, I don't don't smoke weed anymore, but I got high on Christ. Show me a sign. (laughs) Oh, it drives me crazy. Everyone in here should read Strange Fire. It's people who are in darkness that press Christ for proof. I don't know. Somehow I think that real salvation just comes with kind of a, a built in into your DNA into your new creation DNA a trust and you just believe him and you and your 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 new bent is to believe the scripture it doesn't mean you do it perfectly all the time but you just trust him you just begin and as you grow in your knowledge of him you you just begin to trust him more and more with your future and with your tomorrow and with with everything and and you don't go around demanding proofs and signs and show me and do this for me and But there are just great numbers of people that are just always demanding of Christ. And that's what these guys were doing here. And they are the most religious people ever. They demand physical proof. Go get your dad. Go get him. I think Joseph might have been dead by now. Well, I would, but he's in the grave. But I have a true father. Father of all goodness, the Almighty Yahweh. Seven, and this is just how he boils it down. People who are in darkness, they do not know God. 19b, Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. In other words, you wouldn't have even asked that question if you actually knew who I am. You wouldn't know that I have come from the Father, from heaven, and I'm going back. A little later, he tells them, I'm going back, and it's to a place that you cannot come. Remember earlier on, weeks ago, we talked about how maybe even some of these men here would one day seek the Lord, but not be able to find Him. People who were in darkness do not know God no matter how much they claim to know God. It's hard to believe that people that are this religious do not know God. It's hard for me to get my mind around that. But maybe one thing's coming through to you is that religion, <laughs> there's, there's different types. <laughs> But the, the run-of-the-mill, basic, generic religion that's out there will never cause you to know God. I, not long ago, I think it was uh, Chance, uh, Tom's son, who made a statement that was true, and he said religion is, is man's attempt to, to get to God. And I think there's truth to that. But I read something last night that struck me. Uh, and what the author of the book that I'm reading, it was a kind of a biography of the apostle Paul, and he made a statement to the effect of religion isn't about people trying to get to God. It's about people running from God and creating their own gods and their own religion. It's in response to, I don't want anything to do with God. So it's not about trying to ascend. It's about trying to stay as far away from the true living God who has revealed himself very clearly through His creation, through conscience. Every man is without excuse. Read Romans 1. It is about men who know God exists. They've seen the invisible attributes of His power. Their consciences, even though seared, they testify to the existence of God and they say, I don't want that! And they create religion and they create idols. So, it's not about getting to God. It's about creating your own to stay away from the true God. They do not know God no matter how much they profess. And, and here's one of the, the litmus tests is, is what a person does with Jesus. What a person does with Jesus, that'll tell you if they know God. If Jesus is God, if Jesus is man, if Jesus is the sent Messiah, Savior, if Jesus came to die for our sins, to rise for our justification, those sorts of things, if that's what they believe, they know the true living God. But if they don't, they don't know God. I don't care how religious they are. I don't care if they go out and crusade and blow themselves up and kill others in the name of some kind. of. I don't care what they do. I don't care if they wear the garb and walk around going, dominus, ominous. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. What someone does with Jesus, what they believe about Jesus, determines whether they do know God or not. And to reject Jesus is to reject the entire Godhead, especially the one who sent Him. They do not know God. Let's look at our last verse, verse 20. It says, These words He spoke in the treasury as He taught in the temple, but no one arrested Him because His hour had not yet come. So the treasury was where the sacred offerings were laid up and where the candelabra were located. Because of this, it was one of the busiest places, busiest courtyards in the temple. You had everyone going in there to give their gifts to the Lord. You had people going in there for the lamp lighting ceremony and dancing around these big candlesticks and all of this stuff. You had a lot of people in this area. In fact, there were a lot of women in there because it's also the court of the women. This is as far as they could go in the temple. I don't make up the rules, gals. So don't I'm not tell you these guys. They're trying to control us. Well, I'm not. It's the way they did. They also had a court for Gentiles. So guess what? That's where I would have been. Can I get into the, Get out of here. Oh, Okay, I'll just stay back over here. Dance around my own little candle. That's just the way they had it. They had it partitioned out. But this particular place in the temple... Was good sized. It had the candelabra. It's where these big, kind of um, trumpet shaped offering, these brass or bronze trumpet shaped offering things. You know those horns people blow at the ball games? They drive me crazy. It's like, Hur! I had one behind me one time at a Modesto nuts game. I wanted it, never mind. Um, but They looked like that, and people would drop their offerings down into it, and it would slide down and go into a box. They had these all over the place in there, just a big giving room. In fact, I think we're going to convert that room right there into a big trumpet giving room. Maybe that'll keep you in this room. I can't go in there. We're going to convert it. That's this room. That's where they were. It was the busiest place in the temple. What does that tell us? Well, what a perfect place to proclaim the light of the world, the gospel. And Jesus was strategic. He chose this place because of the numbers of people that could hear him. A lot of people there. After decimating the Pharisees, because that's essentially what he did. He just annihilated them in those eight verses. He just brought them to Theological ruin. They attempted to arrest him again, but were unsuccessful. I wanted to do the research and find out how many attempts were made to arrest Jesus, and I found four. So in John's gospel, there's four attempts made to arrest him, and they were all unsuccessful. Why were they unsuccessful? Why couldn't they arrest Jesus? Well, whenever we see a failed attempt, we see a statement like this because his hour had not yet come. Jesus was fully protected by the sovereign power, sovereign protecting power of God, and He remained untouchable until the appointed hour of His arrest, didn't He? Which occurred, by the way, about six months after this, during Passover, the next Passover. Closing. You ready to wrap it up? My question is, my first one would be, are you still in your sins and in darkness? I mean, you know yourself. If you're not following Jesus, if you're not trusting in Him as Lord and Savior, you are. You are still in your sins. You are, you are still in darkness. It may not seem that way at times, but that's your spiritual position. And that's really the way the world is. There's I don't like to categorize people, but if we do, there's two. There's those who are in darkness and those who are in light. Those who are in light are in Christ. Are you still in your sins and in darkness? Have you repented? Have you put your faith in Christ alone as your Lord and Savior? If you haven't done that, then yes, you're still in your sins. You're still in darkness. You will face judgment, you will face wrath. But the good news is Jesus' gracious invitation in verse 12 is to you. We're living during a dispensation of grace, the church age. There's time here. And I would say, as the scripture says, today is the day of salvation. Don't put it off. Humble yourself. Acknowledge that you're a sinner in darkness. Ask Jesus for mercy. Ask Him to give you the light of life. Ask Him to forgive you of your sins. Ask Him to deliver you from the domain of darkness and transfer you into His kingdom, which is sometimes called the kingdom of light. Do that. Pray to Him. Seek Him. He can deliver you. He can forgive all of your sin, wash it all away, remove your shame. Make you a new person. Take you out of this darkened world with darkened folks and bring you into His marvelous light and use you on mission to proclaim the gospel of light to others. He could do that. But you've got to humble yourself. You've got to believe. If we are already trusting in Jesus. We must live in the light. Ephesians 5.8 How do we do this? Three quick things. This is for those of us who who do believe in Jesus, who name the name of Christ, who are Christians, who are believers, who are followers, who are disciples. You're trusting in Him alone for your salvation. We must live in the light. Here's how we do that. Here's how we live. Here's how we walk in the light. Number one, we live in the light when we love others. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Living in the light has to do with loving others. As the Savior sacrificially loved us, so we are to love others. If we are at odds with people, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ, we cannot claim to be walking in the light. 1 John 1.7 Go to your brother or sister. Go to your boss. Go to whomever it is that you have a disconnect and problems with and trouble with and work to reconcile that relationship. Maybe you need to humble yourself or maybe you need to forgive or maybe you need to ask for forgiveness. Doing this would be an expression of love toward that person. And it would be very liberating for you, believe me, because you would now be stepping out. It's almost like you're riding a fence where half of you is in darkness, half of you is in light. And you need to be fully in the light, as a child of light, walking in light. And we cannot do that rightly if we have problems with people. Fix those relationships. Do the best that you can. But I always say reconciliation takes two. Sometimes the damage is so bad that you move to be reconciled, but that person doesn't want anything to do with you. But your attempt shows that you're in light. You can't force people to forgive you. You can't force people to... You just can't. But to to seek after that is the very heart of Christ, who is the light. Amen? Number two... We live in the light when we abstain from the deeds of darkness. Ephesians 5, 3 through 7. In fact, this whole beginning of Ephesians 5 is all about walking in the light. We live in the light when we abstain from the deeds of darkness. According to these verses, the deeds of darkness are sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is almost always translated as porneo. In Greek, and it, it's a very broad term that covers just about every manifestation of sexual sin, fornication, which is sleeping with, you know, your girlfriend, obviously homosexuality. There's just, looking at porn, there's just anything to do with sexual sin. That's one deed of darkness would be sexual immorality and all of its manifestations. impurity. Covetousness, which is idolatry, and that's putting your affection and love on something or someone, putting it on that in a greater way than you would on God. Exalting your spouse up above Christ, exalting your possessions up above Christ, whatever it is. Exalting, usually the biggest idol always is ourselves, so it's about exalting ourselves up above and seeking our own interests and our own comfort, our own leisure first We're supposed to be dying to selves, people. Covetousness, idolatry, filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking. And it's amazing that this is one, but even being led astray by empty words, false teaching. You get the idea there there that if you're gullible and you get sucked into false teaching, you're not in the light. And instead of practicing the deeds of darkness, we are to what? Expose them. Chapter 5, verse 11 of Ephesians. We should be exposers, not practicers. It's very challenging, and it can only be done through the filling and power of the Holy Spirit. But when we're living in the light, living in the light, that's what it looks like. It looks like turning from the things of darkness toward the things of Christ, the things of light. It's a challenge. I understand But it should be the deeper desire of your heart if you've been truly made new. You should want Christ more than anything else. And when those other things interfere, it doesn't take you too long to realize it. Three, we live in the light when we please God. R.C. Sproul years ago wrote a great book called Pleasing God. Everyone should read it. We see this in Ephesians 5, 8 through 18. We please God by what? Practicing goodness, righteousness, and truth. We please God by walking in wisdom instead of foolishness. We please God by making the best use of our time for the days are evil. Put in that ministry time. Get on mission. Proclaim the gospel. Serve the kingdom. Serve your church. And we please God by seeking to be filled with the Holy Spirit instead of things that impair our judgment and ability to live in the light, such as too much wine. Those are the examples that that the Scripture gives here. How do we live in the light? We live in the light when we love others. We live in the light when we abstain, turn from the things of darkness. We live in the light when we seek to please God. And that should be our truest and deepest desire as God's people is to please Him, to bring Him glory. Not to mention to enjoy the fullness of His joy. I'll close with Ephesians 5.8. Listen to, listen to what Paul wrote through the pen and inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, At one time you were in darkness but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Amen.